Praise God. Uh, I was referencing, which we won't talk about. Uh, we just did a whole podcast on it if you want to check it out. Played a number of clips from Disney, uh, leaders in Disney, whether it's a president or a head of TV animation, making such admissions as, uh, hey, we're put, putting queerness everywhere, and we're not even hiding this. This isn't even a secret agenda anymore. We're just, you know, I'm putting, the, the one gal says, and she's the head of TV animation, I'm putting queerness everywhere and people don't know about it, and she laughs about it. And they didn't expect it to come out because it was a Zoom meeting. We've been warning you about this for years and years, haven't we? You know, and I'm sure a lot of people, they say, oh, how come he messes with our idols? You know, no, we need to know the truth, amen? Because there's been other admissions and other things that you can see in the past, but this is just a bold-faced admission, you know? A number of them, by the way. And I just want you guys to be aware, if you're plugging your children, just sitting them in front of the television to watch anything that comes up, especially when these guys are admitting what they're doing, and you wonder why there's been such a transformation of our culture in this way, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Really, it's heartbreaking. But you need to be wise. You need to be, uh, you know, ever vigilant with your children, amen, and protect them because it's like I, I've said for years, it's like Russian roulette, man. You're sticking them in front of TV without any guidance, and they're just getting pummeled with an agenda. And by the way, a lot of times, and we don't have all the gadgets, all the, all the effects and everything else and all the, you know, the magic of television to woo our children, Right? So you don't, you don't realize what you're up against. You're basically, you know, they use the jingles, they use the music, they use the seduction, they use the peer pressure, the other kids. Before you know it, your child, you're wondering, how come they're becoming like this when you're having less influence in the television upon them, amen? And the Bible says we have something more powerful than that, though. Train them up in the way they should go, right? Bring them up in the nurture, admi admonition of the Lord, amen? Bring them up according to God's word. But are you doing that, amen? We need to make sure we're spending time with them. And I have a totally different message, but that's, on my, been on burning on my heart, man, lately. I can't get off my heart because it just breaks my heart. They're so brazenly admitting it now. Uh, and uh, we'll be dealing with more of that in the future. Check out our last podcast last week. We play a lot of clips from that, and, and we look deeply into Walt Disney. I, I point out that he was part of the, a Ro the Rosicrucians. No kidding. Same with the, oh, look what Sam Disney. He would have rolled over in his grave. No, he wouldn't have. You know, uh, he could only push what he could push at his time. Rosicrucians were all about their whole, he was a member, you go to the uh, AMORC, Rosicrucian Society on Wikipedia, and you'll see Roddenberry, the guy who started Star Trek, and you'll see Walt Disney, we're members, and their whole purpose as an occult group is to promote the occult around the world, and Disney's done that more among the youth than anyone because they've always been pushing magic, and that Rosicrucian group was started by the OTO Charter, Crowley's organization, okay? And used a lot of Crowley, his eye in a triangle, a lot of his symbolism and teachings in their group. And Disney was part of it, okay? I've known this for years. I've been pointing things out like this for years. I've been telling parents, we're in a spiritual war, guys. You know? It's not like Satan's in the background saying, wow, it's just amazing how this Walt Disney guy and Disneyland is influencing so many people with the occult. And I have nothing to do with it. Wrong. Okay? Anyway, <laughs> uh, I love you guys. I just have to speak the truth, you know? And I know, I, I honestly know this. Some people have a hard time with it because sometimes I mess with people's idols, whether it's Disney, Marvel, music. But I, I have to speak the truth. You know, I don't dot your I's and cross your T's legalistically. I just make you informed of what's going on, encourage you to honor Jesus with the information. Amen. But those who love the truth, we get along really good. Amen. Love you guys, man. Father, be with us as we get into your word in your son's name. I want to spend a, two or three weeks on... Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. And I know we're, you know, next week is Friday, you know, we'll have a message on his crucifixion again Wednesday. So when I say two or three weeks, I mean two or three messages, three, four, we'll see where that goes. It's, it's hard to study Jesus' cross too much, amen, and his resurrection. That's the heart of the gospel, amen. So I love this time of year because people are thinking about it, hopefully, and I want to talk, I have a couple talks. Next week we'll have a talk on the resurrection, and a little bit on the crucifixion at the beginning of that message, which I've worked on that message off and on for a few years, actually, that I'm actually preaching this coming Sunday. By the way, th there'll be two messages Sunday, as John mentioned. There'll be one at the, uh, at, you know, the sunrise service outside, and it's just a glorious, beautiful time. But most of the people that come to that message come to the next message because guess what I do? I preach two totally different messages. So that one's a shorter message, uh, and then the other one. So if you really want to just get encouraged in the resurrection. Try to make both uh, because they're different messages. So you're not hearing the same thing twice. 
I want to talk about a really heavy subject. We're talking about the cross and what Jesus went through on the cross. And right now, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors this Sunday and, and uh, probably on Friday, maybe a lot of them, I'm sure, some on Wednesday, like us again, which will be talking about, many of these pastors will be talking about the physical trauma Jesus experienced on the cross. And rightly so, we've done that a number of times. What he went through on the cross was so absolutely amazing and there was so much physical pain. It's something that ought to be studied and we've studied. But one thing people rarely ever study or you ever hear it talked about, which I want to talk about, because to me, <laughs> it's just as huge or bigger, uh, is Jesus' uh, spiritual suffering and how he actually experienced hell on the cross. Because he suffered the penalty for our sins, amen? And the wage of sin is death, right? And the wage of sin is death, and, and we deserve death, God's wrath. We suffer God's wrath. It's, it's just, because God is fully love. He is God. He, the Bible says twice, he, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, amen? 1 John 4, 16, God is love, amen? But the Bible also tells us that God is, is pure, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is righteous. Therefore, he must punish sin. Amen? And uh, thankfully, Jesus was punished in our place. God became a man and was punished in our place because he loves us, so we'd be saved. Amen? But because God does punish sin, because God is righteous, there is separation from God, and that is called, and the punishment that goes with that separation, which is called hell. And Jesus, well... The Bible actually says that at the great white throne judgment, everyone's name who na is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be thrown in the lake of fire. But you know what it says they'll receive? They'll receive punishment, it says, in accordance with their works. So it's not like God just, you know, is at a whim. They get the very punishment that they deserve. Because, and by the way, God's full of grace and mercy. He doesn't want to mete out that punishment to them. It says he does not afflict the sons of men willingly. Leviticus 3.33. He doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? We have a loving God, a good God. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. That's why God became a man and Jesus died. So we learn in Genesis, the first few verses, or the first couple chapters, that everything God made was good. Amen? And when he made humans, he doesn't just say he was good. It was good, but he was what? Very good. Amen? But the Bible talks about Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. In Ecclesiastes, it said that the Lord made everybody upright. He made human beings upright, but men sought out many evil schemes that we fell. We chose not to follow him. Humanity, that is. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that a result of, of human rebellion to join Satan in his rebellion, which we see early in Genesis chapter 3, that man was cursed. The ground became th cursed. Thorns and thistles came up uh, that they were cursed with pain. They were cursed with death. Uh, we read these various things. Well, God's word prophesied that the Messiah would come. And because of God's great love, he would take that curse upon himself. Galatians 3.3, the apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us. He bought us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because breaking God's law came with a curse. Having become a curse for us. He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Amen? Amen? So Jesus bore the curse that we deserved on the tree of Calvary. Now there's various ways he, just, he suffered the dimensions of hell. And this has to be a two, maybe three-part series. I won't cover what, any of these parts on next Sunday. That'll be on the resurrection, although I will talk about the crucifixion a bit. But the two or three parts will probably be this Sunday, this coming Wednesday, good time to focus on what he did for us, amen, because we're in this Passion Week, and then perhaps the following Wednesday, if there's a third message on this, because this is something that's not really explored, and I want to show, and there's various ways, and one message will not get us through it. Different teachers, different scholars will acknowledge at times, yeah, Christ suffered hell on the cross in some way, but they don't typically go into it, or they mention one or two things, or two or three things. I want to mention a number of things. That, are just that, blow, that should blow you away and cause you to love him more. My prayer as John was finished up his prayer and I agreed with John's prayer and I added in my own heart, Lord, 
please help the congregation understand the height and the depth and the width of your length and the length of your love for them in Christ Jesus. Father, please help us open up our hearts to get our brains around what he went through and how he, much he loves us and beyond all the thousand messages going on about how his flesh was torn, how painful it must have been, which is so important to point out as well. But I've pointed that out a number of times. I want to go more in depth into a, something I've never taught in depth on and only mentioned here and there is what he experienced on the cross in the context of suffering hell. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. And we're just going to go right into what was taking place on the cross. It says, uh, and there's a lot more that we're going to share, of course. So don't say, oh, I wish we'd covered this or that. We're going to cover this and that <laughs> next time because we can only cover so much in one setting. And do it justice, at least from my understanding of how I believe the Lord wants me to share it. Now from the sixth hour, he's already hanging on the cross. Now remember, he's already lost a ton of blood. He's been whipped. He's been flogged. He's been beaten by the Roman soldiers. A bag stuck over his head. His beard pulled out, spit upon already, gone through all kinds of stuff, mocked with a scarlet robe, all kinds of these things, praying in Gethsemane. Father, if, if possible, let this hour pass for me. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. I mean, I'm going to take this cup if there's no way anybody can be saved except I go to the cross, which ended up being the fact. Then a lot of things went down. But then you get to verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, that's for three hours, guys. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, that is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is uh, absolutely amazing because... He's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now you can make two mistakes uh, here. Is you, can, you, can, you can say, oh, well, you know, that's the extent of what he's referring to there and miss the fact that he's also referring to, and he's quoting from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm about Jesus, amen, and what he would go through on the cross. We've, we've taught, I taught a year or two ago through Psalm chapter 22, I think two years ago, through Psalm 22, and he's definitely referring to and highlighting that passage and rabbis of old because they couldn't say chapter 22, verse such and such because the uh, Tanakh, the Old Testament, hadn't been broken into chapters and verses yet. So oftentimes when they wanted to bring you to a passage, they would reference the first part of that passage. So a lot of scholars will point out that Jesus is wanting them to understand that this is what Psalm 22 takes, uh, is talking about. However, what some of, those, some of those scholars do is they say, so really it's not what he's going through. It's just that he's referring to that passage. Hogwash, okay? That's ridiculous, okay? Yeah, he's referring to what's going on in that passage, but one of the things he's referring to that's going on in that passage is the experience of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that passage goes on to where Jesus talks about how they've divided his garments up, Right? This is 900 years before the crucifixions, you guys. 900 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it says, they pierce my hands and my feet. 900 years before this happens. By the way, people weren't put to death in those days, 900 years before Christ's crucifixion, in Israel by way of piercing their hands and their feet, by way of crucifixion. How did the Jews kill people in David's day? They stoned them to death. That's right. That's right, they stoned them to death. Crucifixion wasn't even, you know, on, on the docket as far as how they punished criminals. Yet here you have David, and Peter mentions uh, how David speaks by the Holy Spirit of the Messiah, crying out, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's something that Jesus went to. So one mistake is to say, oh, it's a reference to Psalm 22. But that's kind of all it is, wrong. <laughs> What's he referencing? Right? The other mistake is to not rec recognize that he's referencing Psalm 22 and that there's more going on there too. It's a powerful passage. So he's crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in what context, brothers and sisters, please understand the context. In what context is he saying, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's right after what happens. Right after what happens. What's the verse before it? When 
the darkness in midday when it should be bright and sunny out in the springtime, there's, thick, there's this darkness. And it's in the context of light going away and there being all this darkness and the sun not shining that he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's important to understand that there was some sense in which Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And I don't believe he ceased to be God in triune and, and unified as some teach. That's unbiblical because he's always God from everlasting to everlasting. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. But in his humanity, we cannot doubt because it's right here in the text that he suffers the wrath of God on our behalf. Amen. And in that sense, he bears the penalty of God's wrath and anger that we deserve. And in that sense, he has a sense of forsakenness. It's at least that, that he has a, a sense of God's wrath being poured out upon him. At the same time, he knows he's in the perfect will of the Father. So at the same time, he never loses ultimate hope. Amen? But do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, did he go through some traumatic feelings? Absolutely. Hematrodosis set in. His blood was popping out of his capillaries, falling on the ground with sweat, right? And there were heavy tears, it says in Hebrews chapter 5. It wasn't just crying. It says, with heavy tears, he cried out to God, you know? And it's pretty heavy. Who was able to save him from death? And the father answered him and saved him. Saved him, yeah. He saved him because he was to the point of death, it says, in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, losing blood, going through only just over 100 people, has forensic science verified, have gone through hematrodosis with such stress. That's after billions of people have lived, guys. With such stress that their capillaries pop under their skin because of what he's going to face on the cross. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And I don't think we can get our brains. Jesus is the toughest person that ever lived. And I don't think we get our brains around what he went through on the cross. It wasn't just his physical suffering. Do you understand where I'm going with this? He's suffering the wrath of God. Amen? He's suffering, uh, he's suffering in, in his heart of hearts. Great pain and great anguish. Now, he's suffering darkness. Darkness is one of the expressions of God's wrath. When people choose sin and they sin against the light of God and they turn from God and his, the light of Christ, all there is is darkness. Jesus talked about those who pursue sin, who are in darkness, and he said, how great is that darkness? So darkness on one hand is a choice people make. And when you turn away from the Lord God, you're left with darkness. But it's also a judgment of God. In fact, when God judged the Egyptians, do you remember what the ninth plague was? Darkness. Darkness so intense that it could be felt. Could you imagine feeling the creep of darkness? It says in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Now, the Israelites who were seeking Yahweh, it says that darkness did not envelope them, that there was light in Goshen, that area of Egypt where God's people were. This was a judgment. However, in Jesus' case, he's experienced God's judgment. So he's experienced in intense darkness in a sense of the wrath of the Father. Now, it's interesting. Why did God bring darkness upon the Egyptians? I've noted before, and we've actually studied each of the ten plagues, and each plague was directed at one false god or another or more than one. And the chief god that they worshipped, other than Pharaoh, who they believed to be an incarnation of that god, which the tenth plague struck his firstborn son, the ninth plague, their chief god is Ra, R-A, Ra. And Ra was personified and sometimes uh, equivocated, or I should say sometimes made equal with Horus. And Ra was the sun god. So they looked at the sun as a personification of Ra. God warned not to worship the creation, but the creator. That's God's 
S-U-N. He's the one that created that son. Amen? And, and God brought judgment upon Ra because behind the gods they worshipped were really demonic entities that sought to use adamant objects or inanimate objects as, and sometimes obviously animate objects, uh, as gods. And if Satan could get you bowing down before an idol of wood or stone all your life and not finding the one true God, then he was victorious. He kept you from eternal life. Amen? But God loved the Egyptians. He cared for them. In fact, why did God choose long before we get to Exodus, Abraham in chapter 12, the first few verses, it says God chose Abraham that through his seed, who would be blessed? All the nations. That was always God's plan. He cares for the Egyptians. In fact, when you read about the Egyptians in the end times, you read that they get converted. It's pretty cool. And there'll be people from every nation, kindred, and tongue that are saved. Amen? And God cares for these Egyptian people. And he brings judgments upon them. Do you know why he says he brings judgments upon them? So that they would know who the true God is. Jesus Christ said in John 17, 3, this is the eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. When you come to know who the true God is and you seek him out, he reveals eventually his son to you, the scriptures teach. And the Bible says that God brings his judgments that the nations may learn righteousness. Amen? Amen. So he wants them to learn righteousness. He wants them to understand who the true God is. That we, okay, well, man, he's judging all our gods, but we still got Ra. The Egyptians could think. Then boom, it's dark. It was dark for a long time. They couldn't hope in Ra anymore. And by the way, after the 10th plague, and Pharaoh is broken for a time, and Moses leads the exodus through the Red Sea, does it say just the Israelites left? No. no. It says there were a bunch of Egyptians that left with them. It was, they left in a mixed multitude, amen? Some people got the message. Said, okay, Yahweh, you're the true God. We're going to follow you. Some of the Egyptians, amen? So God's judgments are remedial. And whenever you're talking to people about hell and the seriousness of hell, it's important that you let them know that the Bible says that Jesus said, not that you have to say exactly these words, but it would be good to communicate that Jesus doesn't want anybody to go there. The Bible says hell was created for the devil and his angels in Matthew chapter 26, or 25, I'm sorry, verses 40 through 46. It was created for the devil and his angels. And it's God's heart that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Amen? The Bible says in Ezekiel, that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and live. Amen? So, uh, but God, now why is God bringing his judgment on his, on his son? Because that's the only way we could be saved. Because God wants to save humanity. Amen? And who's that, he wants to provide salvation for everyone, that whosoever will come, because he's given people free choice, can come and be saved. What a good God we have. So, in Matthew, now listen, this is what, when Jesus experienced great darkness, he's experienced what we deserve. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 8, 12. Jesus said, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30, Jesus said, and cast the unprofitable servant out or into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter wrote about those uh, false teachers False prophets who turned license into, or turned God's grace into a license for immorality, that they have eyes full of adultery and are trained in covetous practices. And he pronounces their eternal doom, saying, quote, the blackest darkness is reserved for them. Dude, having the same teachers in mind, in 1.13, says, their wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, to whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wow. That's powerful. That's powerful. That darkness that we deserve, he experienced. And it could be asked, well, how is it that he could experience it in a, in, in a temporal period of time when people will be in it for eternity? Well, I'll give you the answer to that Wednesday night. Part of it is because he's an infinite being and he suffers infinitely anything he suffers. And, but there's more reasons that and it's good to have answers for these things. That's why we try to encourage with regard to apologetics when you talk to the lost, to, to encourage you, educate you, and hey, what if a lost person, and you're witnessing them, says, well, how did Jesus suffer for us on the cross when it was, you know, it was for like, a, you know, a few hours or what have you, as they might think it was only a few hours, but went just a number of hours on a, during, during a day. Well, we've have, we have a great answer. Jesus suffered 
everybody's pain equivalent to what they would suffer in eternity in time. And we'll talk about that later. But it's interesting because God's, even the darkness that fell upon the Egyptians was remedial, as we saw, to get them to repent. Even God will give people a taste of hell before they actually go to hell during the tribulation period as well to let them know what's coming. A preview of coming attractions. In fact, listen to Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, the first part of verse 10. What will happen under the fifth bowl judgment? The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Wow. It was plunged into darkness. Now, tragically, even though this is deep into the tribulation period, and the last of the judgments of God, it says, just before Christ returns, and people don't want to repent. We go on to read the end of verse 10 and then verse 11 of Revelation 16. People nod their tongues in anguish. Isn't that interesting? What are they experiencing? Pain. And cursed God, or cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Guess what Jesus was experiencing on the cross? Intense pain like that, guys. Do you realize, are you getting a little glimpse here? Just the darkness. Because that darkness wasn't directed at everybody else. When Jesus was on the cross, it was what? <laughs> directed at him. What we experienced, or ought to have experienced, he experienced for us on our behalf. Now, we can't experience the light of Christ the light of God, if we're in rebellion to God and in sin. In fact, being fallen, fallen human beings, even those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, cannot experience the fullness of God's glory yet in our fallen human state. We can have God's presence. He lives within us by his Holy Spirit. Amen. We can uh, see the wonders and the power of God. We can comprehend his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. It's all very, very beautiful. But to stand in God's presence in your fallen flesh could never happen right now. Because of our own spiritual darkness. And even though we've been forgiven, those who are Christians, we're still tinged by sin. And we still need to be resurrected in bodies that aren't fallen. Amen? Amen. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 8, the first of the, you know, early on, in the, not the first, but early on in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the what? Pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. We won't be absolutely pure in heart until the resurrection. You know what the scriptures say? <laughs> as far as, you know, dwelling in God's presence, that God is a consuming fire. And it says in Isaiah 33, 4, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell in the consuming fire? Who can dwell in God's presence? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? That's gnarly. Because God is love, 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16, but God is also a consuming fire. You see the sun? That's not even a candle to God, man. There's millions and billions of those suns many much bigger than our sun. And the Bible says the heaven can't contain, the heaven of heavens cannot contain God's presence. You're dealing with a radical God we need to appreciate and get our, 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 our eyes on as much as he allows us to. And who can abide his presence? In fact, listen to 1 Timothy 6.16 in the New Testament after Christ died. It says, of God, he alone possesses immortality. In other words, God None of us are self-existent, amen? Our eternal life is only in connection with his life that he shares with us, amen? He alone is self-existence. He alone, it says, possesses immortality and lives and lives in unapproachable light. Wow. He lives in unapproachable light whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. To him be honor and eternal power, amen. Now, we're not able to see him in that unapproachable light in our state right now. But the Bible says that we have been transferred, Colossians 1, 
11 through 13, out of the kingdom of darkness, amen, into the kingdom of his dear son. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and this is a glorious truth for all believers. Listen, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness into his what? Marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you remember Moses went up the holy Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments? Did you know that Moses talked to God, the scriptures say, and that he spent time in God's presence? But he knew God wasn't sharing all of his presence. In fact, he enjoyed an incredibly intimate communion and relationship with the Lord and it says in Exodus 33, 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. That's pretty heavy, huh? God speaking to, Moses speaking to God is, well, what happened when God became a man in the person of Jesus? Happened there too, amen? And it says that Jesus revealed the glory of the Father, but not all of his glory, you see, because he became flesh. And dwelt among us, amen. And Moses, uh, knowing that uh, he was talking to God in a theophany, an appearance of God, knew that he wasn't seeing God in all of his divine, in the fullness of God's glory and his divine essence. And he desperately, desperately wanted to experience more of God's glory. And he requested that the Lord show him his glory in Ezekiel 33, 11. Now, God couldn't allow Moses to see him in all his glory because Moses would have been, like I've said before, a tissue piece, a little, little piece of tissue in front of a flamethrower. Where'd Moses go? I think he's that wisp of smoke, you know. So, but you know what? God honored his request to show him some glory that wouldn't destroy him because of God's great goodness and our great evilness. There's such a contrast between the light and the darkness. And the scriptures tell us in Exodus 33, 19 through 23, that God promised to show Moses his afterglow. And he would put him in a cleft of a rock, you know, a fissure, a cleft of the rock, kind of hidden from the rock. And he'd put his hand over Moses, had to put him in a cleft of the rock, had to put his hand over him and only showed him his afterglow. And Moses would be able to see his afterglow. And we read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 8, Then the Lord passed in front of him. So the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And you know what his glory looks like? It communicates his goodness and his righteousness. The first thing it says is, The Lord God compassionate, because God is love, amen? First thing on the list, man. Compassionate and gracious. His grace is expression of his love and compassion. Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Wow, it's a God of truth. He's full of loving kindness. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the father's on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Whew, he's tripping out, seeing his afterglow. And God's showing how good and merciful and full love he is. Yet for the unrepentant wicked and their unrepentant wicked children and grandchildren, those who refuse to turn to him, will receive judgment. Now he wants to give them mercy. He says he's slow to anger. He's full of forgiveness, amen? He's willing to forgive. But we must turn to him. Amen? That's just amazing to me. Now, Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and I just think this is funny. He had no idea that his, his face looked like some kind of floodlight or something, you know? He was shining. In fact, we read in Exodus 34, 29, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. 
Wow. Moses had a real son, S-O-N, tan. Amen? I mean, he's just like literally walking around just whoo, affected by God's presence. Moses is probably thinking, why do people keep taking me for walks? Can you imagine losing something? No flashlights back then. Hey, Moses, can you come hang out with me a little bit? You know? And you used to be able to see everything be lit up around you, you know? I don't think that probably happened, but who knows what happened, you know? But you know what? It's interesting. When you spend time with the Lord, you begin to look like him. I've always said to you that you become like what you worship. The Bible teaches that principle. And the scriptures say that when the disciples were with Jesus, even though they were uneducated men, they, they didn't go to the seminaries, you know, the rabbinical schools of the Jews, but they spent a lot of time with Jesus. And they were far different than the schooled people. In fact, they knew the scripture actually better, which is a trip. And what's interesting, we read in Acts 4.13, now when they, that's the Jewish religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated. I mean, they didn't get it. Like, how can these guys know the scripture? And how could they be so bold and, and so forth? It says, they saw that they were common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Amen? Isn't that a beautiful passage? Spend time with the Lord, guys. Spend time in his presence. Spend time in prayer. Amen? Actually, get on your knees, man, and crowd to God. Not that you always have to get on your knees, but that's something you should not. You, how many of you, don't raise your hand, but you used to get on your knees, and now you haven't gotten your knees in a long time. It's still important to get on your knees at times and say, God, have mercy on me. I want to know you better. I want to spend time with you. When you're sitting down, seek the Lord. When you're taking a shower, when you're driving, whatever you do, pray and spend time with the Lord. Amen? I can't believe this traffic. It's just so terrible. What a great time to spend with Jesus. Amen? I mean... That, you know, when I go through things, it's like, man, I could be spending my time in a lot better way. I seek the Lord. Then there's no better way I could be spending my time because I'm seeking the Lord. I'm either seeking him in prayer or I'm memorizing scripture. That's what we ought to be doing, amen? You know, or, or, or calling people, you know. You know uh, I've, every time I turn on my phone, it seems like I've got a bunch of people I've got to get back to. So I'm, you, know, you know, but you're encouraging people in the Lord. You're just seeking the Lord, amen? Now, it's important how many of you think they tripped out on Moses, amen? How many of you realize they tripped out on John and Peter because the same reason? Oh, they didn't probably see light beaming, but guess what? They saw the light of Christ in them. And God's word says to Cain, remember Cain, when he wanted to kill his brother? Cain, why is your what? Countenance fallen. Why do you look so depressed and down? He says, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Amen? So when we seek the Lord and we do what's right, our countenance is lifted up. Amen? Amen? That's why it's like, oh, I need to see a shrink. No, you need to spend time with Jesus. You need to be in his presence. You need to be in prayer. Oh, but I've been seeking him and I'm still going through, my countenance is still fallen. He's a lift of your head. But he doesn't always lift your head overnight. You think Job's countenance was lifted up the next day when his, after his trial started? Well, right after he hit, he hit the ground, man. Lord gives, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it probably was lifted up a bit, right? But then he got in a funk because he was still in his trial. But you continue to seek the Lord, amen? And eventually the Lord will deliver you from your trial. And your countenance will be lifted up because he is the lifter of our heads, amen? Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with him. He, you were made, you were created in his image. You were created to know him. You were created to spend time with him as Abba, Father, amen? amen? Cry out to him and say, Father God, thank you for making me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for caring about me. Thank you for even though you knew I was gonna blow it, that you sent your son to die for me so I could be, my sins could be paid for. I could be forgiven and have a relationship with you and be reconciled with you. And I could be in your presence, amen? Seek his mighty face. And guess what? We could do that right now. He might say, well, Moses, you know, he saw the Lord in some way, right? Yeah. And the disciples spent time with Jesus. And, well, but, but Jesus said to the Father, but wait. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the what? End of the age. Amen. He's with us. Amen. If you're a believer, he lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives, lives in you. Amen. Amen. We have his word. Do you realize you have more of his word than most of all the Old Testament saints had in their day? Do you realize you have more of his word than many of the New Testament Christians had in the first and even second century? A lot of them just had certain books of the Bible. Look what we have, man. We have this whole treasure before us from Genesis to Revelation, amen? 
This is his living word, which is alive. It's more powerful than a two-edged sword, able to divide bone and marrow, able to divide soul and spirit. Amen? It's powerful. And it says it works effectually in the hearts of those who believe and those who meditate on his word day and night. And it's his word. It's a reflection of his heart. It's his love letter to you. And when you meditate on his word, you become what? Like a tree planted by the water. And when the other trees that aren't planted by the water, which is the Lord and his living word flowing in you and through you, those, their leaves will dry up. But your leaves, it says, will be lush and beautiful. You spend time with the Lord, and we need to spend time with him in these days when everybody's drying up, amen? We need to spend time in his word. We spend time in his presence. We spend time seeking his face. And all he is is a prayer away. All you have to do is say, Lord, I love you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for sending your son, and thank you for inviting me into your presence. Because Jesus died. God sent his son to die for you because he loves you. God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? He says he didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, what? May be saved. He died to save you and to let you know he loves you so much, each and every one of you, that he wants you to go into his presence. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, that we're to enter confidently, the King James says boldly, into the throne room of God, amen, and obtain mercy, right, and grace in time of need. He wants to pour his grace out upon you. He longs, the Bible says, he longs to show people mercy. I love that verse. He longs to show people mercy. Wow. And it says he has mercy over all of his works. Are you one of his works? Amen. There's that mercy for you. He's ready to forgive you. You don't have to doubt. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast away. Amen. What a good God we have. And you know what? I love this passage because this verse shows how we can seek him in the here and now. This is after Jesus had ascended to the Father. Look what the Apostle Paul writes. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Okay? We don't have a veil. Moses had to put a veil over his face because (laughs) the light was fading away and he said we with an unveiled face we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being what? Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now understand what's happening here. As we look to the Lord and we seek Him in prayer, as we seek Him in His Word, we're transformed, just as Moses was transformed at Mount Sinai, from into His image, to look more like Jesus, that is. Amen? From glory to what? Glory. Do you want to look more like Jesus? Do you want to be more like the one you were created to reflect? Jesus is the most awesome person in the universe. He's the creator of all things. Amen? And the more you study his word, the more you seek him. He transforms you into his image. And notice what it says at the end of that passage, the end of that verse. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Understand, you have God is there, but also his what? His word you're looking at. He's talking about his word there. And his spirit is at work, Right? And that's where he goes on to say a few verses later in chapter 4 that God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Amen? We were darkness. Amen? Amen. But the Lord commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. And he said, let there be light. And then it says he has caused his son to shine in our hearts. And you remember, we've talked about that before, so I'll just spend one minute on it. He's talking about this transformation that he's talking about right here is so powerful. And Paul is citing Genesis, the first few verses, where it says in the Hebrew that the, the earth was what? Remember? Starts with a T. Got the Hebrew down. Tohu wabohu, right? That's in the, Genesis 1, the first few, few verses. The earth, it was tohu wabohu, formless and empty, or formless and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. That's us before we're Christians. And the Lord said, let there be light. And he brought transformation to the earth. And Paul is saying, that's what God is doing in us. As Christians, we were tohu wabohu. Before we were Christians, what happened? Before we were Christians, we were in tohu wabohu. We were formless. We had no form, no purpose in our lives. Remember, we just did our own thing. The Bible says that we were children of disobedience, and we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And the word course there is is used of a weather vane that just goes with the wind. We kind of just went with the fads of the world. We just did our own thing. We wandered around, you know. We were formless. 
and we were void. What's it mean? Formless and void, empty. Before Christ, we were what? We were radically empty. Amen. We were, Lord didn't live in us. Amen. We were formless and we were empty. The Lord says in his word to the Ephesians that God saved you from your futile or your empty way of life. Amen. And then what were we? Darkness, it says, was over the face of the deep when God said, let there be light. We were filled with darkness, man. We had no light. It was pitch dark. There was no light yet. And God said, let there be light. Boom. And when he first says, let there be light, that's not talking about the sun and the stars. You know that? Because he didn't make the sun and the stars yet. God just lit it up because that was a picture of salvation. That was a powerful picture of what God wants to do in us. God said, let there be light. Guess what happened when you got saved? You were tohu wabohu, formless, void. Darkness was over the face deep. And it says in Genesis that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, right? And God said, let there be light. What happened? The Holy Spirit was convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, letting you know you needed to be saved, amen? And God said, let there be light, amen? And the light of his word came, amen? The Bible says in John 1, 9 that Jesus enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world and you receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says when one turns the Lord in this passage right here, three and four, that when you turn the Lord, the veil is taken off. All of a sudden your eyes were open because in chapter four, verse four, it says that the, if uh, the gospel be hid, it's hid because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So we were blinded by Satan. God said, let there be light. He saved us. Now, we don't just get saved, but according to 3.18 of 2 Corinthians, what? The Holy Spirit, same spirit that changed us and made us born again, amen, works in our hearts as we look to the Lord and transforms us from what? Glory to glory into the image of Christ as we look to the Lord. That's not going to happen if you ignore the Lord. If you're going through your, your week doing your own thing and not seeking the Lord and you're not devotedly pressing on to know Jesus, you're not going to be transformed from glory to glory. Paul also says that the outer man is decaying. Amen? But the outward man or the inward man is being renewed day by day. Amen? So every day we can have renewal. Every day we can become more like the Lord. Every day we can grow. And just as a little baby turns into a toddler and an adolescent and then a full-grown adult, so that's what we should be ha happening to us spiritually. We should be growing stronger and stronger spiritually. And then the trials that befall us, that beset us before, don't befall us, or they still befall us, but they don't beset us like they did before. Because a little speed bump is now just a little speed bump. It's not a great mountain anymore as you grow in the Lord. And we need to make sure that we're growing in the Lord. Because the trials that we experience presently are nothing like what's coming in the future. And as Jeremiah was warned by the Lord, if you can't run with the foot soldiers, what are you going to do when the chariots, when the horsemen are running through the thickets of the Jordan? So we need to grow right now, amen? We need to grow in the Lord. Praise God. Now, because of what Jesus did on the cross and taking the darkness that we deserved, taking that aspect because hell, we've just, I've quoted different verses where it talks about hell. We'll have great darkness, right? Outer darkness, amen? Blackest darkness. It'll be horrible because Jesus experienced that dimension of hell on the cross. We don't have to experience it, amen? Right now we have the light of his word. We have the light of Christ's presence within us. And one day we'll be resurrected and our hearts will be purely, totally pure, Amen? Not just being cleansed from sins, which we already have that, amen? They're pure in that way, but there'll be no more wickedness at all. Nothing unclean enters into the holy city. There's no temptation now. There's no fallen flesh that you're attached to anymore, amen? Satan is in the lake of fire, amen? God has those who have proven that they want to do his will and live for him forever, amen? And they're just living for him as the bride of Christ forever. And guess what we will be able to experience then? We'll be able to dwell in that unapproachable light will now be approachable. How do I know that? Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no more night there, its gates will never be closed. <laughs> yeah, I like it. There's going to be no more night there. I mean, we appreciate night because we're tired. It's, oh, we get to go to sleep. We won't be tired anymore. There'll be no more pain. We'll be more like the little kids. I'm, I've got four, and I think today I'll have my fifth grandkid. Lisa and I are taking, we have five grandkids, but we're not having a new one, but we're taking care of them this whole week, four of the five, and we'll have all five, I think, today. And uh, 
They don't want to go to bed, you know. They wish there was no night. They just wish they could just hang out, you know. And uh, although I take that back, Justice, he's looking at us, and all of a sudden he just gets up, smiles, takes off. Lisa goes, follows him. He put himself to bed without even being asked to go to bed at that point, you know. And um, I would let them stay up till 2 in the morning because I'm that kind of grandpa, but not the wisest grandpa at times. I mean, after they, I realized they needed sleep, I'd make them sleep. But it goes on to say, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not leave or have need of the light of the lamp. And they will not have need, I'm sorry, or of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. There it is. We're going to be in the presence of God forever. And we're going to be in his light, basking in his light. Amen? Well, guess what? You can get a suntan right now, though. Amen? Just like the apostles had. Just like Paul said. And you ought to have a, a Jesus tan. Amen? A, and I'm talking about a S-O-N tan by seeking him. Amen? So it's really heavy when you look at this. And you know what? You're all going to have that suntan, that S-O-N tan. All those who are trusting Jesus and following him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all, uh, all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right now we're like the moon, you know. The Bible talks about the Song of Solomon, the bride of, of the king, which represents Jesus, shines like the full moon, right? But in his eternal kingdom, when we're experiencing his full glory, you'll shine like a sun. Whew, that's, that's gnarly. Or Daniel 12, 3. Those who are wise will shine. It's about the end times and those who persevere in their faith. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars of heaven, or like the stars forever and ever. Isn't that beautiful, guys? Isn't that beautiful? So therefore, uh, we need to, you know, rely on the Lord's grace and serve him acceptably. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That passage I quoted earlier in Isaiah who can go up and who can dwell in everlasting burnings? You know what it goes on to say? Those who do his will. goes to spell it out. In the future, those who are in his will will be able to endure God's presence as a consuming fire because that fire is not directed at them in wrath. Amen? Because they've accepted the, the providential provision of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf on the cross. Are we seeing how Jesus experienced hell on the cross and what it means? Amen. Amen. Next thing I want to talk about is separation. Is we talked about him experiencing great darkness, but also there was a sense of separation that he had. I don't believe, as I said, as some do, that he was literally separated in his essence from the Father. He would cease to be God if that was the case, and it doesn't say that. But he experienced the wrath of God in a sense of, of God's ultimate displeasure because he accepted what we deserved, amen? And what's the judgment we deserve? Separation from God. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, Of the wicked, he will say, Depart from me, you are, who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from him. That's a real sense of separation. 2546 of Matthew, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, when he first punishes them on judgment day, they'll be in his presence, and then he'll send them away. Not in all his presence, but they'll, he'll, heaven and earth will pass away, and then those who rejected the Messiah will be thrown in the lake of fire. And then, but they'll be separated from him for eternity after that, because we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that when Jesus Christ comes back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Catch this. These will suffer, sep, uh, sep, uh, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So be, the wicked will be ultimately separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory 
of his might. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. Okay? It's an undeniable correlation. Uh, because you see, he experienced, as I mentioned, the wrath of God. And Jesus, when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember that he was bearing the sin of the world. He was taking the sin of humanity upon himself. And it's important that we know that when he bore that sin, uh, he, you know, took the Father's wrath, and the Father cannot look upon that which is evil. He was punishing him. And we read uh, in Habakkuk 1.13 of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And when he caused his wrath to fall upon his son, he treated him at that moment in the way we deserve to be treated. You understand? And all of the punishment was encapsulated in that moment and poured out upon Jesus. But it's important to understand this. He also suffered, it says, outside the camp. Outside the temple. Outside Jerusalem. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 13 that he suffered outside the camp. He bore uh, the sins of the world. Now, guess what? Another picture of Jesus in the Old Testament is the scapegoat. You've heard the term the, a scapegoat. Scapegoat is usually someone who takes the blame for someone else. And that's what it came to be understood as. In this context, it's a goat, a goat that escapes, so to speak, or is set off into the wilderness. Well, Jesus said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Well, on the Day of Atonement, they'd have this bowl that they'd sacrifice one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, they would celebrate the, the Day of Atonement, but a lot of people point out the bull that was sacrificed and so forth, as, which would, you know, uh, hide all their sins. But a lot of times they miss the scapegoat. And actually, there were two goats. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20. It says, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. There are two goats that were used. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And what? Send it what? Send it away into what? The wilderness. By the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall what? Bear all their iniquities of, on itself to, to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So they take the one goat, right? And they slay it, right? His blood will be poured on the altar. Picture of Jesus, yes. But this scapegoat was also a picture of Jesus. The high priest would put his hands on it, right? And all the sins of Israel were transferred to this goat. And when somebody says, oh, I believe Jesus died for our sins, but it was just to show us God's love. It wasn't a substitutionary atonement. He didn't really pay for our sins. It was, or it was just to show us how to live moral lives. Or it was just because he was a revolutionary or whatever. That's all just, you know. Yeah, he did show, do it to show us his love, but there's more to it. He was a substitutionary atonement. There's a, this is a really clear picture of this. Just like in Isaiah 53, all, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon who? On him, on Jesus, amen. When the scapegoat, everything was being symbolically transferred to this goat that would then be led off into the wilderness, take away our sins. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, amen. amen. Now it's really heavy when you think about this. In Hebrews 13, 12, it's the verse I referenced earlier, uh, verse 12 and 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in the wilderness to sanctify the people by his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So he bore our sins, you guys. Amen? He bore our sins. And uh, the scriptures say in Isaiah 53, 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Peter states in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, uh, he says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. For by his wounds we are healed. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had known no sin for us. God had made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place. We deserve darkness. He took our darkness. We deserve separation. He had a sense of alienation deeper than we could even, because he had, had everybody's sense, you know. And he experienced that so we could experience his righteousness so we could experience his salvation. So we could stand with him as part of the body of Christ before the Father in his righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which comes through faith. Amen? Amen. Now it's heavy because we learn in, uh, he, in a Hebrew Mishnah, Jewish, the Talmud, uh, some of the writings of the church fathers, we get a glimpse of their tradition and how they practiced this scapegoat uh, situation with regard to the scapegoat. And it's interesting because we read in Mishnah, Mishnah Yoma 6.6, 6, he divided the thread of crimson or scarlet wool and tied one half to the rock and the other half to its horns. Now it's interesting because they ended up starting to take that, that, that scarlet thread, right? Which represented sin. And then Jesus' blood, which is pure, would pay for that sin ultimately. But they take a scarlet thread and put it around the goat in the second temple period before Christ. The epistle of Barnabas, one of the early church fathers, uh, he states that they would take two goats, goodly and alike, and offer them, and let the priest take one of, as a burnt offering for sins. But what would they do with the other? Barnabas asked, and he says, or he answers, and, you shall, and they would spit on it, and goad it, and bind a scarlet wool about its head, and so let it be cast off into the desert. Okay. Now Tertullian, another early church father, states again, so again, I will make an interpretation of the two goats which were habitually offered on the fast day. Talking about the Day of Atonement. The one of them was begat with scarlet and cursing and universal spitting and tearing and piercing was cast away by the people outside the city into perdition. The Jews said they would actually cast it off a cliff eventually. They'd spit on it. They'd pierce it. They'd goad it. They'd mock it because they carried their sins away. What did they do with Jesus? The Bible says in Isaiah 56, a prof chapter 50, verse 6, a prophecy, I gave them my back, this is the Lord God Yahweh, to those who strike me, and my cheek to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. That was going to happen to Jesus on the cross. That's what we deserve, man. We deserve to be mocked and spit upon because of our wickedness and our sin. But Jesus took it for himself upon himself. Zechariah 12, 10 in the Old Testament says when the Messiah comes back, they'll see him who they pierced. Amen? The Jews will see the one they pierced. In Isaiah 56, it says, 53, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. Amen? And we read in chapter 22 of Psalms, which I already referenced, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is all a picture of Jesus. And the scapegoat is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish Talmud, this is the Jewish rabbinical writings that Jews, religious Jews read. In Tractate Yoma 39b, it says about 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Hmm. Who was around 40 years before the destruction of the temple? In ministry, started his ministry, Jesus, and died for our sins. Amen. This is what it says in that tractate. See, what would happen is in this tractate, this Yoma, in Yoma, mentions how for 40 years they had a really good high priest in Israel before Jesus came. And the red crimson that they tied around the temple doors, when the scapegoat went off, that that would turn white. And that showed that God had accepted their sacrifice. Are you following this? You don't want to miss this because it's heavy. When that goat goes off with that scarlet thread representing their sin, what would happen? They, for 40 years, it says, the, the scarlet thread around the temple doors would turn white. And then off and on, it was different colors. White, not white. And then in 30 AD, which some scholars put his crucifixion, many scholars put his crucifixion in 30 AD. Others put that as the beginning of his ministry. Either way, that's when Jesus came, amen, to bring the new covenant. Guess what they write? The red wool, this is from Yoma, in the, in the Jewish Talmud, the red wool did not become white. Didn't become white anymore, ever again. 
the temple gates opened by themselves. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil of the temple that kept them out of the Holy Holies? It was ripped from the top down. The temple gates opened by themselves. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai rebuked the gates, saying, Temple, temple, why do you alarm us? We know that you are destined to be destroyed. 70 AD, 40 years later, temple is destroyed. When Jews right now, you're witnessing to them, and they're like, hey, you know what? Oh, well, you know, well, we, we have our way following Yahweh. Well, wait a minute. Where's your sacrifices for your sins? God opened the door. He invites everybody in because Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. Amen? Amen. And he's the one that turns us, our sins, though they are scarlet, to being white as snow. And it's interesting that the Yoma passage I was reading, it cites this verse in Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Amen? So your sins can be forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And by the way, what did they dress Jesus in right before he went to the cross? A robe of scarlet. You guys, this just gets too beautiful, too deep. Amen? You know why I never want to finish when I preach, right? It's just the, the word of God is just too beautiful, too good, you know? Yet he bore our sins outside the camp. And God accepted his sacrifice. That's why the doors could be open. And God's saying, I'm no longer accepting your guys' sacrifices. Amen? And if you accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and accept the fact that he died in your place, that he shed his blood in your place on the cross to pay for your sins, amen? They experienced the hell that you and I deserve on the cross. If you believe that he died according to the scriptures and was buried and he rose again on the third day, that's the gospel. And if you repent and turn from a life of rebellion, doing your own things and living in darkness, you turn to Christ, you say, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become what? The children of God. Let's stand, please.